Okay, hello everyone. Thank you very much for joining us uh, today for the uh, very ultra exciting uh, Anaway Los Angeles uh, section, very special event. Uh, today you will see we have a very uh, uh, fantastic, amazing, distinguished speaker and leader in this field. Uh, we'll get more into that, but before that, we have a few logistics to go over. Uh, so, uh, first, thanks a lot to our AIWA headquarters. Um, uh, they supported this wonderful Zoom platform, very expensive. And uh, today, uh, we have the permission from our speaker, Dr. Mark Luis, for the recording. So, this event is being recorded, and uh, the link will be uh, emailed to everyone. Uh, uh, so you can uh, refresh your, your uh, memory and the uh, great experience today. Um, just a few words. If you have any question, please type it in Q and A. Um, you can put it in chat, but it could be buried in the uh, communications. Um, and uh, more toward the end, after the presentation during the Q and A session, uh, please click your uh, click raise hand on Zoom, and you will be unmuted, and uh, you can uh, start with your interactive uh, question Q and A with Dr. Luis. Um, so just a few words about AIWA. Uh, we'll try to be brief. Uh, AIWA, as you know, is a nonprofit organization, uh, the leading organization in aerospace. And uh, the vision of our organization is shaping the future of aerospace. Um, there are a lot of benefits for uh, joining the membership. Uh, one thing is that we're different level of membership from professional early career to students. And uh, our session chair right now is Dr. Jeff Prushell from Raytheon. He's our AWA fellow. Uh, then we have many uh, uh, exciting uh, uh, role models and uh, volunteers, officers from uh, JPL, uh, uh, you know, like uh, uh, Miss Sherry Stokes or Boeing, like Kurt Courtney and many others. Uh, and um, uh, so welcome to uh, join us. If you want to uh, volunteer, please let, let us know. And one important feature for AIWA is for engagement is AIWA Technical Committee and also many other things like Engage, Aerospace America, and also uh, like our speaker today, Dr. Mark Luis is our honorary fellow. Uh, so as a member advancement is also very important. And a student scholarship and national conference like uh, uh, SciTech, uh, Ascent, uh, there are many things and the local Los Angeles that's bigger section as um, multiple events like today, very exciting. Uh, you don't get anywhere else uh, like the uh, you know, uh, we can, um, you know, that's very good. And uh, we have many local activities and also great companies like uh, uh, Northrop Grumman and uh, Relativity Space, those things. Uh, so today we have really have the great honor to uh, have uh, the distinguished speaker, Dr. Mark Luis join us. He's our honorary fellow. Uh, from AIAA, and uh, he's also uh, executive director of Emerging Technology Institute. Um, the Emerging Technology Institute, ETI, is a nonpartisan non research center focused on technologies that are critical to the future of national defense. ETI provides research and analysis to inform the development and integration of emerging technology into the defense industry base. Uh, prior to this position, Dr. Luis was the director of uh, defense research engineering in the Department of Defense, overseeing technology modernization for all service and DOD agencies, as well as the acting deputy under secretary of defense for research engineering. Uh, in that role, he was the Pentagon's senior most scientist, uh, overseeing an organization with 17 billion annual budget that includes DAPA, the Missile Defense Agency, 
the Defense Innovation uh, Unit and the Space Development Agency. Federally Funded Research and Development Center, FFRDC, and the Department of Basic and Applied Research Portfolio. Um, from 2012 to 2019, uh, Dr. Luis was the Director of the Science and Technology Policy Institute and FFRDC that supported the Executive Office of the President and other executive branch agency in the formulation of national science and technology policy. Dr. Luis is a professor emeritus at the University of Maryland, where he served as the, uh, Willis Young Junior Professor and the chair of the Department of Aerospace Engineering until 2012. Uh, he's also uh, as a faculty member of Maryland for uh, 25 years. Dr. Luis taught and conducted basic and applied research in the fields of hypersonic aerodynamics, advanced propulsion, and the space vehicle design and optimization. Best known for his work in hypersonics, Dr. Luis' research has spanned uh, the aerospace flight spectrum from the analysis of conventional jet engines to entry into planetary atmosphere. From 2004 to 2008, Dr. Luis was the chief scientist of the US Air Force, the principal scientific advisor to the chief of staff and the secretary of the Air Force. As the longest serving chief scientist in Air Force history, his primary focus included hypersonics, space launch, energy, sustainment, advanced propulsion, basic research, and workforce development. From 2010 to 2011, he was president of the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics, AI. AA, the world's premier aerospace professional society. Uh, Dr. Lewis attended MIT, where he received his Bachelor of Science in Aeronautics and Astronautics, Bachelor of Science in Earth and Planetary Science, uh, and a Master of Science and Doctor of Science in Aeronautics and Astronautics. He's the author of more than 340 publications and has been advisor to more than 70 graduate students. In addition, he has served on various boards for NASA and the DOD, including two terms on the Air Force Scientific Advisory Board. As a recipient of the U.S. Air Force Exemplary Meritorious and Exceptional Civilian Service Awards and the Secretary of Defense Outstanding Public Service Award, Dr. Ruiz was also 1994 AIWA National Capital Young Scientist Engineer of the Year received the IECEC AIWA Lifetime Achievement Award, the AIWA Dryden Lectureship Award, and the AFA Theodore von Kármán Award, and is Aviation Week and the Space Technology uh, Laureate. He is a member of the International Academy of Astronautics, a fellow of the American Society of Mechanical Engineers, a fellow of the Royal Aeronautic, or Aeronautical Society, and an honorary fellow of the AIAA. So it's truly, truly our greatest uh, honor and uh, pleasure. And uh, let's welcome heartily uh, Dr. Mark Luis. Great. Well, thank you. First of all, thank you very much for that kind invitation. Um, I think that's all the time we have for, for today. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, so let, let me thank all of you for spending part of your uh, Saturday, uh, Saturday morning with me. And, and what I hope to talk about is, is a subject that's obviously very, very near and dear to my heart but I think is also a topic of critical, critical national importance right now, um, not only in, in, in defense, but also in the civilian sector as well. And that is the topic of hypersonic flight. And what I hope to do is cover some of the challenges that we face and also opportunities. And we'll talk a little bit about the technology 
but also some of the political and policy realities that we face right now. All right, so let me start with the basic question. You know, what is hypersonic? What does hypersonic mean? And I'm sure most of you on, the, on, on this webinar are somewhat familiar, um, but, but just to level set, so you know what we're all talking about. Hypersonics reflies, refers to flight many times in excess of the speed of sound. Um, there's no fixed definition. There's no set number. You don't, you, you don't suddenly go from supersonic to hypersonic at some given number, but we usually refer to flight in excess of about Mach 5, five times the speed of sound as being hypersonic. And that's because a number of phenomena occur at that speed that start to become particularly dominant in governing the, the, the aerodynamics of, a, of, a, of an object. Um, the shock waves that form at any supersonic speeds, by the time you get to hypersonic speeds, they're pressed very, very close to the surface. Heating becomes very important because of friction with the atmosphere. And that's especially true on leading edges and especially true when the boundary, boundary layer flow on the surface of the vehicle transitions from laminar to turbulent. Um, at, at once you get to hypersonic speeds, uh, gas chemistry becomes important. Um, that means that air can start to decompose, molecules start to break down. At high enough uh, hypersonic speeds, we start to get ionization, we get plasma effects. So all those are important. Now, in modern parlance, when we say hypersonic, it usually means something that is spending a lot of time in the atmosphere. And I'll explain that in more detail. Um, Hypersonics today is, has become a shorthand for hypersonic maneuvering and also spending a lot of time in the atmosphere. And that could be powered by an air breathing engine. That means an engine that uses oxygen. Could also be powered by rockets. Um, it could be a blunt object, a sharp object. But most of the examples that I'll be talking about, they're actually relatively sharp configurations designed for low drag so they can stay in the atmosphere for a longer period of time. All right, so with that context in mind, let me, let me call your attention to the fact that there are basically those two approaches to hypersonics. One is to use an engine, a jet engine that operates in the atmosphere, an air breathing system, as we call it. Air breathing, because air is coming into the front of, through an inlet, and we're using the oxygen in the air to burn with fuel inside an engine. And the other solution, the other, the other approach is to simply use a rocket engine, to a rocket boost. And in most cases, we're rocket boosting a hypersonic con uh, configuration and then allowing it to glide. And I've got two examples uh, on this slide that I hope you can all see. Uh, for the air breathing example, you see a picture of, of one of my favorite programs. That was the US Air Force's X-51. It was about a 14 foot vehicle. It was an experimental flight test vehicle. It was uh, uh, dropped off the wing of a B-52 bomber. A solid rocket engine lit off, got it up to hypersonic speeds uh, close to Mach 5. And then trend, uh, the booster fell off in a transition to the main vehicle, the experimental vehicle 51, which was powered by something called a supersonic combustion ramjet engine. That's a jet engine that can operate at hypersonic speeds. On the other side of the slide, uh, under, uh, uh, over the, the rocket boost label, you see a DARPA program. That's a, a configuration that was called the Hypersonic Test Vehicle 2, HTV2. And that was launched on top of a booster rocket. It accelerated to very high Mach number and then separated and glided uh, the rest of the way down. Now, the program on, on, on rocket boost, the HTV-2, was actually not very successful and encountered significant challenges during the course of the program. Ultimately, it was, was flown twice and failed both times because of the, frankly, the difficulty of operating in the hypersonic uh, regime. But there were, there were hard-won lessons learned and have informed a lot of the work that's underway today in the field. 
All right, so given that we've got two basic approaches to hypersonic flight, um, we can categorize all manner of vehicles that can operate at hypersonic speeds. Um, at the bottom of the slide, I hope you, know, you can all see um, entry, entry systems, planetary entry systems, any spacecraft that's entering the Earth's atmosphere from orbit, from transit coming back from the moon, or entering the atmosphere of another planet is likely traveling at hypersonic speeds. That includes Mercury, Gemini, Apollo, space shuttle, um, the probes that we've sent to Mars, they are all entering those atmospheres at hypersonic speeds. You'll note that those configurations are all blunt and that's for a reason, right? The heating rate, the rate at which a leading edge is heated at, 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 high, at hypersonic conditions, scales roughly with the inverse square root of the leading edge radius of curvature. So that means sharper gets hotter. And so for something like a spacecraft, like an Apollo spacecraft, you make it blunt, you give it a nice big blunt heat shield. The shock wave that forms stands off from that heat shield that mitigates heating on the vehicle. It also has lots of drag, but if you're coming back from space, you actually want drag. You wanna slow down in the atmosphere. You don't normally wanna use a rocket engine because that would be wasteful. That means you're using fuel. So those systems wind up being relatively poor, poor aerodynamic shapes from the standpoint of, of, of drag but very effective in handling the heat loads that, that can be experienced during re-entry. Now at the top of the slide, you see a, 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 a different categories of hypersonic configurations that operate in a different part of the flight envelope. These are configurations that are supposed to travel long distances in the atmosphere. And that means they have to have low drag. In order to have low drag, they cannot be blunt shapes. They have to have sharp configurations. They have to have sharp leading edges to give a high lift, low drag uh, uh, performance. And I generally kind of put these into three different categories. Um, on the left-hand side of the slide, you see weapons. That's uh, uh, cruise missiles, uh, intermediate range, and longer range hypersonic configurations. Uh, in the middle, aircraft, and they could be manned or unmanned, the aircraft for a range of missions. Everything from intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance to maybe rapid pa uh, package delivery, and ultimately perhaps uh, uh, um, uh, 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 human travel. And then on the right-hand side is kind of, I said, the, the gleam in the eye of, the aeros of, of, of hypersonic aerospace engineers. And that is using principles of hypersonic flight in a launch vehicle configuration. And the advantage there would be to reach space with more of an airplane-like model and less of a rocket model. And let me explain in a nutshell why, why that would be so attractive. So if you compare what was required, what is required to get a rocket ready for launch. And take the example of the space shuttle. It required several thousand people over working several months to get a space shuttle ready for launch. And if you go, think about the whole process that they went through, the shuttle would land usually at Edwards Air Force Base. It would be safe, mounted on the back of the uh, 747 carrier airplane, flown to, to the Cape, was mounted in the vehicle assembly building, onto a stack that included an external tank and solid rocket motors, put on the, a mobile transport, rolled out to the launch pad, ready for, ready for launch. Again, thousands of people in several months were involved in doing that. Compare that to airplane-like operations. Uh, a 787 lands at, at, at LAX. It come, pulls up to the, the, the terminal, taxes up to the terminal. The passengers get off, the bags get off, they clean the toilets. They used to put food on the airplane. They don't even bother doing that anymore. And 15, 20 minutes later, that airplane is ready to fly again. Now, obviously, spaceflight would never be quite that simple. 
maybe someday it will, but in the near future. However, if you can operate more in an airplane-like mode, then it should ultimately be a, a one, way, one means of reducing the cost of space and increasing the access, accessibility of the space environment. The reality is today though, of all the things on this chart, the area that we're focused on right now is on the left top left-hand side weapons. And for very good reason, and I'll go into that in more detail. It's kind of the low hanging fruit. It's the technology that's most likely to, 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 to be available first, but also is playing right now a critical role as we look at technology modernization for our Department of Defense and as I'll point out, other countries as well. All right, so let me take you back to a governing document that was produced by the Department of Defense, the National Defense Strategy that was released in 2018. And let me explain what this document is all about. So every four years, the Department of Defense does an assessment and, and publishes this document known as the National Defense Strategy. In the Pentagon, we call it the NDS. Um, Honestly, in most, most releases, the NDS is not a particularly meaningful document. They tend to be full of apple pie and motherhood statements, not a lot of meat to them. But 2018 was really quite different. There were two distinguishing features of the report that came out that year. One was it refocused the Department of Defense on strategic competition. Right? After 9-11, much of the Department of Defense was really focused on the war on terror. And 2018, the 2018 document said, well, okay, that's important, but that isn't an existential threat. What is an existential threat to the United States is the work of our peer competitors as they build up their military capabilities, and more importantly, as they modernize those military capabilities. And in particular, that national defense strategy focused on Russia and China, and especially China, with the investments that, that they're making across a range of technologies. Now, the national defense strategy, which, 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 which by the way, I, I point out is, 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 it was a real strategy. Most of the national defense strategies of previous years had been more tactical. This was really strategic. Um, it began in the Obama administration. This is a four-year process and was released by General Mattis in the Trump administration. It's about to be updated. It could be released any, frankly, any day now, the 2022, but, but it really carried considerable bipartisan support. And if you look at those, that list of, of technologies, modernization priorities, if you will, for the department, you'll see that hypersonics figured very, very prominently. And in fact, um, when the report was first released, hypersonics was viewed as the single most important technology on this list of modernization priorities. In 2019, the list was tweaked a little bit. Um, microelectronics was also highlighted as a top priority in the Pentagon, but hypersonics still remained a very prominent, prominent priority. Now, of course, that was the previous administration. So what's happened since then? Well, in uh, just last month, January, 2022, the Undersecretary of Defense for Research and Engineering, the Honorable Heidi Hsu, also an AIAA member, by the way, an AIAA honorary fellow, um, Heidi's office released their own list of technology priorities. And once again, hypersonics is on that list and is very, very prominently featured. So this is transcendent administrations. Um, I, I will say as an aside that when, when, when Heidi came to the Pentagon and she looked at that list of technologies that the previous team, our team had, had, had uh, uh, identified, 
you know, her first comment to me was, and that list is probably too long. If you've got too many priorities there, how can we handle all those priorities? When she released her own memo, Chechi, did, she didn't subtract any of these priorities. And in fact, added a few things on, onto our list. Uh, but hypersonics has certainly received a lot of attention from, from the current team. All right, so let's talk a little bit about the history of hypersonics, right? How did we get to where we are? Um, who, who, who did what in the field? And I trace back to the late 1940s, the very first human-built hypersonic ob object was a sounding rocket, WAC Corporal Rocket, that was launched on top of a captured V-2 rocket in 1948. Uh, the fellow that you see standing in front of that rocket is a gentleman named Frank Molina, who was a colleague of Theodore von Karman's. Uh, they did this work out at White Sands. 1948, they launched uh, a corporal rocket to a little bit uh, faster than Mach 6, six times the speed of sound. So the, the first human-made hypersonic object. As an aside, uh, the team that was doing this decided that White Sands wasn't an ideal place. They looked for another, another place to launch rockets and they, they hit upon a peninsula in Florida. And so that was one of, that was the impetus for, for, for uh, uh, building a launch facility at, uh, at, at, at Cape Canaveral. Um, hypersonic flight received significant attention uh, throughout the 50s as we we're developing ICBMs for you know, reentry systems. In the 1960s, NASA and the Air Force and the Navy operated the X-15 rocket plane, which I think still to this day is the gold standard for experimental aircraft. There were three X-15 vehicles built they flew throughout the 1960s, a total of 199 flights. Um, thousands of documents were produced, incredible, an incredible uh, uh, source of, 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 of uh, research information. Some very famous pilots flew the X-15, including uh, Neil Armstrong. Um, if you saw the Armstrong biography, the movie that was produced uh, uh, came out a couple of years ago. Um, it opened with him flying the X-15 rocket plane. Um, one of those X-15 vehicles was lost in the flight test program, along with its pilot, but two of those remain. One is hanging in the Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C., and the other is prominently featured in the Experimental Gallery in the Museum of the Air Force in Dayton, Ohio, and, and still an absolutely amazing vehicle. Um, X-15 holds the record, by the way, still for uh, human flight in the atmosphere. 1967, uh, pilot Pete Knight, uh, uh, held that record. Um, uh, recently, his son, Steve Knight, had uh, a couple of years ago was elected the congressman uh, from the state of California and he, his district included Edwards Air Force Base. Um, Steve used to say that his father, Pete, would be very, very disappointed to know that he still holds this speed record, but indeed he still holds the speed record. So it tells you that, although we've made a lot of progress in the field, um, Progress has not been as 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 uh, as as, as um, extensive as one might like. Other milestones in hypersonic flight. So I mentioned um, any spacecraft that enters uh, a planetary atmosphere from from orbital conditions or, or or space transit is traveling at hypersonic speeds. The fastest manned entry was the Apollo 10 capsule, traveling at about 37 times the speed of sound. Um, we dropped a probe into Jupiter off uh, the Galileo uh, uh, spacecraft. It entered the upper atmosphere of Jupiter at Mach 65, 65 times the speed of sound. Um, fastest Earth entry was Mach 43. That was the Stardust uh, capsule uh, back in 2006 and still holds the record. And then on the air breathing side, remember I mentioned air breathing as being one of the ways we, we propel a vehicle at hypersonic speeds. 
Um, X-51 holds the record for the longest scramjet flight from 2013, although unofficially, we can't really talk about it, but unofficially, that's no longer the record. So that's kind of a good news story. That was quite an accomplishment. And now, um, uh, roughly eight years later, uh, that, that, that record was unofficially broken. All right, so what is driving us now that we've got this resurgence of interest in hypersonics? You saw the history, you saw we work in the field, the you know, work goes back decades, but now there is an incredible sense of alarm and a sense that the United States really needs to be ramping up its activities. And really that timetable is being driven by competitors and in particular Russia and China. Both of those countries have made no bones of, have, have, made no, have not hidden the fact that they are actively pursuing hypersonic systems. You see the picture of a military parade that the Chinese had in 2019, where they were very happy to show off some of their operational deployed hypersonic systems. This is a DF-17, which is a hypersonic glide body. Um, very recently, this summer, um, the news broke of a Chinese hypersonic system, which was a fractional orbital bombardment system, allegedly. That is a hypersonic vehicle that could be placed in orbit and then deorbited and strike any place on the planet. And over in Russia, uh, the, uh, Vladimir Putin himself is constantly talking about their hypersonic portfolio, boasting about their capabilities. And what's also important about both Russia and China is they're looking at hypersonic systems for both conventional and nuclear systems. So this is really quite alarming. It's also, uh, it's especially alarming considering the pace of advancement of both of these countries, and especially the pace of Chinese advancements where they've already gone to deployment of systems in apparently large numbers, where we are still in the demonstration phase for our hypersonic systems. And in fact, recently, I, we've had an embarrassing string of failures. I mentioned the HTV2 uh, vehicle that fell. That was uh, almost 10 years ago now. But we haven't followed that up with very many more successes. And you see here on this slide just a, a, um, a couple of, of news articles that, that kind of give you a picture of the fact that we've, we've had some embarrassing setbacks. Um, the article at the bottom, by the way, about the hypersonic missile falling off an Air Force B-52, that's actually wrong. That didn't happen. Right. No missile fell off a of B-52, but it kind of shows you the reporting that we've been we've been we've been seeing. Um, the fact that our programs have been delayed, you see in the upper right hand side, uh, the Hawk program, which is DARPA program uh, that was uh, from a year ago, December. Uh, that program was supposed to have been flying in September and wasn't. Although there is good news, and that is that that uh, this fall, uh, the Raytheon version of the Hawk vehicle did actually fly. It's a vehicle very similar to X-51 and was mostly successful in once again getting us back into air-breathing hypersonic flight. So let's talk a little bit about that. Why are we having challenges? Why are we, why are we facing so many, so many difficulties in, in meeting this obvious threat that we're facing from peer competitor countries? Um, well, I would give you several explanations. One, we've had very inconsistent funding in hypersonics. Um, my, my friend Dick Hallion, also an AIAA fellow, uh, one of our foremost aviation historians, likes to point out that if you map out funding in the field of hypersonics, it tends to follow a 15-year cycle. They are boom and bust cycles. 
So we're up, we've got programs, we're dumping a lot of money in, and then the bottom falls out of it. And so that impacts workforce. That means you're always relearning how to do things. It means you give up on infrastructure. You start shutting down wind tunnels. Well, we don't have the programs anymore. So do we really need the wind tunnel? And then we'll start to invest again. And we realize that we have to re-educate workforce, have to relearn how to do things. We have to recommission wind tunnels and build back our capabilities. I would argue that one of the reasons that we've had a string of flight test failures is that much of, the, much of our flight test workforce has forgotten how to operate in the hypersonic and the realm. You know, in the days of the X-15 program, X-15 was flying roughly once every 18 days. You build up an operations tempo. You learn how to do things. It becomes muscle memory. And when you stop doing that, it becomes more and more difficult to, to, to be consistently successful. Um, frankly, sometimes our field has been its own worst enemy. We have older oversold concepts, right? In the 1960s, the US Air Force was, was proposing something called the aerospace plane. It would have required multiple miracles for it to operate. It was a serious program that was canceled, frankly, among a lot of giggles. In the late 1980s, we had the National Aerospace Plane, which is gonna be a single stage to orbit vehicle. It's supposed to take off from any runway, any long runway, fly all the way up to orbit. Um, it was a multi-billion dollar program. And yet it really was a bridge too far. It was attempting to do things, and I'll talk about that in a little bit more detail. It was attempting to do things that, frankly, we didn't know how to do. Sometimes we've had poor program choices when we've made technology uh, uh, decisions. Um, we've had insufficient flight testing, both in unit numbers and frequency, and that, that's led to our failure rate. And as I said before, you, you forget how to do things. You start making dumb mistakes. We've also been risk averse, frankly, in my opinion. Um, we haven't always designed our experiments well. We've done hypersonic flight tests where the biggest risk associated with the flight test isn't the hypersonic part. You know, we'll design things where getting up to hypersonic speeds is the biggest risk. And, 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 and that's, that's not a recipe for success. Um, even more frustrating, we have had some remarkable successes. The NASA X-43 was the first vehicle to demonstrate a scramjet-powered scr flight with thrust greater than drag. It was an absolutely remarkable program operated out of NASA Dryden. And after the, the, the final flight of X-43, instead of doing the obvious logical thing of continuing to fly and expand the flight envelope and, and, and learn new things, we stopped doing the program. The Air Force did the exact same thing. I showed you a picture of the X-51 earlier. It was a remarkably successful program. It built directly on the X-43. It was a long-duration scramjet-powered vehicle. After its fourth and fully successful flight, the Air Force basically canceled the program. Um, we tended to have next program-itis, right? So instead of continuing things, we'll stop and we'll start something completely different. I, I mentioned the Hawk vehicle that just flew uh, this fall, the, the Raytheon success. Well, that came 11 years after the first flight of X-51. And they're very similar. And you ask, why is that? Well, instead of continuing X-51, when we decided to do air breathing flight again, we started over from scratch. We began with a whole new program. Um, other mistakes that we made, putting experimental agencies like DARPA on a critical development path. That's not a recipe for success as well. And then finally, and this keeps coming back and it has come back very, very recently. Despite all the evidence that we need hypersonics, despite the pressure of peer competitors who are investing, who, are, who aren't making any, any secret of the fact they're building hypersonic capability. We have in the background this sort of constant hand-wringing 
this skepticism. I, I still have people tell me hypersonics is the future and it always will be. That's wrong, it's here. Um, very recently, the Secretary of the Air Force, Frank Kendall, was raising questions about hypersonics, saying, well, he thinks we can do some of the hypersonic missions with existing capabilities. Now, I'm gonna respectfully disagree with that. I think that's absolutely wrong. And, and then we also see organizations like most recently, about a year ago, the Union of Concerned Scientists came out with a, a, a paper that claimed that hypersonics provided no advantage uh, 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 in, in, in warfare. It was a what I would characterize as a blitheringly stupid paper. It got so many things wrong, I don't even know where to begin. But yet that paper got a lot of publicity. It was on the front page of the New York Times. People are a year, and, uh, a year and change later. People keep citing that paper for me. And, and so, so we, we have this kind of, uh, this, this, this drag, if you will, that have frankly hurt our ability to, to advance in the field. And so we come to this 15 year cycle that I described earlier. And this is kind of a, a rough representation and courtesy of Dick Hallion, but you, you see this, this boom and bust cycle. And you know, starting with that first uh, Frank Molina flight in 1948, that was Project Bumper. And then you see the, the 1960s, and then we see a drop off National Aerospace plane in the, the starting in the mid 1980s, and then that program stops. We see X 43, X 51 in the 2000s, and then that falls off. But now notice the good news today a significant, significant increase in hypersonic funding. How much money is, are, are we spending in hypersonics? Well, let me give you some numbers. Um, if you were to roll back to 2016, the Department of Defense alone was spending maybe, maybe about 300 million a year in hypersonics. This year, it'll be in excess of three and a half billion. Over the next five year period, the Department of Defense has allocated roughly $24 billion in hypersonics. So this is real. The funding levels are real. And I'm going to argue, people keep asking me, well, is, is the bottom going to fall out again? I'm going to argue this time it's, it's here to stay. It's here to stay because of all the external pressures that we see. All right. So with that context, let me go back and talk about some of the mistakes that we've made. And I want to start with overselling hypersonics. And my favorite example, or perhaps my least favorite example of that, is the NAS program from the mid-1980s, also known as the X-30. Now, I'm going to start off by saying this was an incredibly, incredibly noble effort. The NAS program was announced on national television by President Ronald Reagan. What an exciting program. I was a graduate student at the time. Many of my colleagues in, in hypersonics were also students at the time. This was a whole of government effort focused on building a vehicle that could take off from a runway and fly all the way up to orbit, primarily on air breathing engines, on scramjet engines. Now, as originally proposed, the NAS vehicle was going to be about a 50,000 pound vehicle. Um, it was uh, going to be ramjet, as a ramjet, scramjet powered, um, accelerate up to orbit at the end of the flight. It would use rockets to, to, to circularize, deliver a small payload, and then come back and land on a conventional run, runway. And that dated to a baseline design from about 1983. So today we're talking about something that's almost a 40-year-old design. By the time the NASA program was canceled in 1993, the vehicle had grown from 50,000 pounds to 450,000 pounds. And for those of you familiar with aircraft design, a, a, rough, a rough rule of thumb is uh, weight equals cost. So the vehicle would have been much more expensive. We also realized that there were things in this vehicle that we didn't know how to do. 
all right? Air breathing propulsion, scramjet engines. This thing would have had to have flown up to close to 25 times the speed of sound. We hadn't even flown a scramjet engine at five times the speed of sound yet. Would have had to have used advanced fuels, uh, solid liquid hydrogen, slush hydrogen, required advanced materials. There were a lot of miracles that would have been required to make this vehicle operate. And by the way, the deep dark secret, the folks who, who worked on this final design will admit that it didn't quite close, that could never quite get it up to orbital speed the most, with the most optimistic design considerations. At best, they could maybe get it to near orbital speeds. So this is one of those examples of kind of overselling the concept. And again, that's led to, you know, a part of the oversell is that mixed flight test record that I alluded to earlier, you know, the DARPA HTV2. The Navy High Flight Program, that's, that one's worth noting. That was a program that attempted to fly a small scale test vehicle that was gonna be powered by a particular type of supersonic combustion ramjet called a DCR, a dual combustor ramjet. Really intriguing concept where you link ramjets and scramjets in a combined system. An idea that was invented at the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Lab. Um, three tests were done. None of those tests were successful for reasons completely and totally unrelated to that hypersonic engine they're trying to test. And yet the program was canceled. And I can tell you that we had at least one peer competitor that was convinced we didn't cancel the program. They were convinced that we moved it to a black program because they didn't believe we would be that silly to cancel a program that had failed for reasons unrelated to the technology we were trying to test. Turns out we actually were that silly and, 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 and did cancel the program. But we, you know, I mentioned also we've had some notable successes. I alluded to the X-43, uh, two flights uh, in 2004, one at almost seven times the speed of sound. I refer to that as the Kitty Hawk moment in hypersonic air breathing flight. It showed beyond any doubt that a supersonic combustion ramjet vehicle using oxygen from the atmosphere could power itself through the atmosphere with thrust greater than drag. And then NASA did it again in, in, in November that same year, flying at almost 10 times the speed of sound on that X-43, on, on another X-43 vehicle. Um, X-43 only operated for about 11 seconds under scramjet power, but in, in the hypersonic realm, 11 seconds is almost infinity because it represents, represents a lot of flow passage times through the engine. All right, so that led to the vehicle program that I also mentioned earlier, the X-51. And I think of this is almost the Charles Lindbergh accomplishment in hypersonics. Whereas X-43 showed it could be done, showed that there were no physical limits to hypersonic air breathing flight. X-51 showed it could be practical. And there were some significant differences between X-51 and X-43. X-51 was powered by hydrocarbon fuel, jet fuel, whereas X-43 was powered by hydrogen. X-51's engine was actively cooled, so it could operate basically as long as you kept fuel flowing into the engine. Whereas on X-43, it was the, the walls were basically built out of copper and the engine, just, engine walls just absorbed heat long enough so they didn't melt before the engine stopped operating. Four flights of X-51, the first one was May of 2010. It, it got almost to Mach 5, 143 seconds of powered flight. So an order of magnitude more flight time than the X-43. Flight two was a failure in June of 2011. Engine stopped, didn't, just didn't ignite, but we learned a lot. Flight three was a failure. A fin fell off the vehicle. We didn't learn anything. And then flight four in May of 2013 gave us almost 210 seconds of powered flight at hypersonic conditions. And, and that was really quite an amazing accomplishment. I frequently point out the most exciting thing that came out of flight four was that the vehicle worked pretty much exactly as everyone expected it to work. 
if you plotted the flight data against the ground test data and the simulations, the, 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 they fell right on top of each other. So it showed that we really understood this realm of flight. And, and my hat's off, by the way, X-51 was designed by a team from Boeing. Its, it's outer mole lines were, were, were designed by a, a group led by Kevin Bocut at Boeing. Like, no, many of you, many, many of you at this webinar will, 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 will know. Um, the engine was an Aerojet Rocketdyne engine, um, which performed uh, flawlessly on this last flight. Now, what did that lead to? Well, in 2014, so that's one year after the flight of X-51, the Chief of Staff of the United States Air Force, General Mark Welsh, released this document called A Call to the Future. This was a strategy for the future of the Air Force. And in that call to the future, it listed a number of technologies that would be critical to the success of our, 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 our future national defense. And the top technology listed there is hypersonic flight. Now, I'll tell you as an aside, when this document came out, I had people calling me saying, oh, the Air Force got it wrong. They should have put this in there and they left this technology out. And I keep reminding them, yes, but hypersonics was in there. Um, but I'd also remind them that first, it was really important to see a strategy document that talks about the future of national defense that highlights the role of technology in that future. And by gosh, this was a chief of staff who understood that hypersonics was front and center. In, in, in that future. Now, unfortunately, there were others who were paying more attention than we were. We released that document in 2014, but at that point, investments in hypersonics were still just kind of sputtering along. It was a year after we had flown the last X-51. We were spinning up a couple of DARPA programs, but by and large, the services were not investing. Even the Air Force had basically relinquished much of its activities to DARPA, including sending its money over to DARPA. So we weren't building on, on, on those successes, but other people read what we wrote. They said, wow, the future is hypersonics. Hypersonics is gonna be really important and it plays a key role. And, and so they latched onto it. Um, China, for one, began a massive effort that they didn't hide from us. They told us about the, their, 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 their work. Russia as well, in the case of Russia, they resurrected concepts and ideas from the Cold War that had been put on a shelf and they started uh, um, bringing them back and, and flying things that they hadn't flown in decades. And so in a very short period of time, these two countries made remarkable progress while we did not. Now, let me give you one indication, and this is from AIAA. So as you may know, every 18 months, there is a hypersonics conference that is hosted by AIAA. And the, the original model for that was to alternate. Every 18 months, it would alternate between the United States and an international location. Uh, we had one in Munich and the United States. We had one then in, um, had a meeting in Scotland. Um, in uh, 2017, that's four years ago, this conference was held in mainland China. The Chinese uh, pulled out all the stops. They made a bid on it. And you can see that that was the year that the Chinese reminded us that they were actively, actively engaged in this area, all right? You see on this chart, um, three countries plotted, the United States, China, and Germany. Those are the most active, active in publishing in the field. And up until 2011, the United States was publishing the most papers at this conference. And when we get to 2017, we're obviously swamped. Now, there are a couple of caveats here. Obviously, since the conference was in China, you wouldn't be surprised to see that there are a lot more papers in Chinese. Great. But... The number of Chinese papers at that conference 
was far, far greater than any number of the number of papers that we had received when we held this in the United States. And I'll remind you that this is an AAA conference. So these papers were all unclassified. So this was mostly university publications and unclassified lab work, right? This was not their military. So this was the first, this was a very, very solid piece of evidence that we have, that we had now have peer competitors who are investing not just in programs, but in their students, in their universities, in their workforce. And that means they're investing for the long haul. You can also argue the number of US papers decreased because we started understanding the significance and the military uh, uh, implications. And so we actually started discouraging open publications from our researchers. So there, there's certainly some of that going on in this chart. But this thing, this, this, this data overall reinforces the fact that we are very much in a global competition today. So much so that in 2016, we did a report through the Air Force Studies Board of the National Academies called Defending Against Hypersonics. And this is a report that uh, I was involved in. Uh, Dick Hallion, who I mentioned previously, Air, former Air Force historian, he was involved in. And what this report was about was the Air Force had asked us, okay, we know other countries are starting to invest in this area. Is this important? Is this something we need to worry about? And so we began first by looking at the reports coming in from the intelligence community. You know, were they being chicken littles telling us the sky is falling when it really was? And the first thing we concluded was the intelligence community was giving us really good information. Um, if, if you ever, you know, one of the things that should make you very proud as an American is the work that the intelligence community did in figuring out what our peer competitors were doing. So we felt that their reports were extremely credible. And then asked the question, what does this mean? And, and what we basically pointed out to the United States Air Force, who was the customer for this, was that hypersonics is a very, very serious threat. Um, since then, there have been many, many more studies. Uh, just last month, uh, CSIS, that's a think tank in Washington, D.C., released their own report about how you would defend against hypersonics. And basically, study after study has concluded the same thing. I can tell you most recently, when I was in a position in the Pentagon, when we did wargaming in certain international scenarios that you can imagine, the harsh reality was when we ran those war games so that our, our adversaries had hypersonics and we did not, we lost. It was as simple as that. If they had it and we didn't, we didn't win. Now, if they had it and we did have it also, we had a chance of winning. But then it came down to almost a war of attrition. It was whoever had the deepest hypersonic magazine came out, came out to be successful. Um, I'll show you as, as well on, 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 on this chart, uh, you see in the lower right-hand side, uh, the National Academies very kindly uh, plots out the number of downloads for any given report as an indication of of how um, much attention hypersonics has gotten. Um, this report now, and, and these, these, the, the, the numbers I show are now already old. It's already up to about 5,400 downloads since it was published. In comparison, the average National Academy report gets downloaded maybe 100 or so times. So this thing is getting a lot of attention. It was the most downloaded report that the Air Force Studies Board produced in about a decade. And you see it being downloaded all around the world, including, not surprisingly, some of our peer competitors. All right, so I wanna go back to the technology and I wanna reiterate, um, we've had some milestones. One was the X-43 vehicle, 2004, proved by beyond any reasonable doubt that scramjets work. You can power a vehicle through the atmosphere at hypersonic speeds using oxygen that you swallow into an inlet 
that burns with fuel in a, in, in a, in a combustion chamber. NX51, prove that scramjets are practical, that you can build a scramjet engine that will operate pretty much as long as you supply it with fuel. That means you can build cruise missiles. You can operate for hundreds of seconds. And a good rule of thumb, when you're flying at Mach 5, you're traveling about a mile per second. So if, you're if you can operate for hundreds of seconds, that means you're traveling you know, hundreds of miles in a matter of minutes. More recently, as I mentioned, this just this fall, Raytheon flew their Hawk vehicle uh, using an engine uh, developed uh, by Northrop. And that basically comes 17 years after our first flight of X-43, right? Ten, uh, uh, more, 11 years after the first flight of X-51. So it was a long time in coming, but once again showed we know how to do this. This is proven technology. I'll tell you the story that at the first flight of X-43, so I had the privilege of being in the control room at NASA Dryden. And um, the, the, I was sitting next to the, the chief engineer of the program at the time, a fellow by the name of Randy Bolin. And after the, the successful flight, someone asked, a reporter, I believe, asked Randy, you know, what's the most important thing you learned from this flight? And his response was, we learned this isn't that hard, that this is doable. We're not violating the laws of physics. That's an important lesson. All right, so let's fast forward to where we are today. I mentioned 20, over $25 billion over the, the FIDEP, the five-year allocation, the way the Department of Defense works. It thinks about money in five-year chunks. Um, last year, the General Accounting Office did an overview for Congress. They did a survey of all the hypersonic programs that were, that were currently active. They identified about 70 programs across the Department of Defense, everything from con conventional prompt strike programs where you have hypersonic gliders on relatively large rockets um, to the DARPA programs. Um, that includes both boost glide and air breathing. Um, they identified the Joint Hypersonic Transition Office, the JHTO, which is a new office that was stood up a little over a year ago, actually almost two years ago now, um, which is doing some really re remarkable things, including funding a university consortium that's headquartered at Texas A&M, Right now, it's got roughly 93 universities, not only from around the country, but around the world, working on problems of relevance to the department. You've got portfolios in the research labs, including the Air Force Research Lab, basic research funded out of the Air Force Office of Scientific Research, Office of Naval Research, a university consortium effort, um, joint efforts with international partners. The United States and Australia work together on a program called High Fire, an incredibly successful program. They're doing flight tests out in the, the Australian outback. And that has led to this follow-on program, SciFire, which is another hypersonic program joint between the Department of Defense in the United States and the Australian uh, Defense uh, 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 Research Organization, DSTG. And then also, as we develop these systems, these concepts, we're also thinking about how we defend against them. Right? Other people are clearly building them, as I mentioned, the Chinese and the Russians. And so it's important that we also lay in the capability to defend ourselves against these capabilities. And the Missile Defense Agency working with the Space Development Agency have built a portfolio. And the first part of that portfolio, the first thing that you have to do to stop hypersonic weapon is you have to see it. And so step one is building something called the Hypersonic and Ballistic Tracking Space Sensor System, the HBTSS, being built by the Missile Defense Agency in conjunction with the Space Development Agency. And what that is is essentially a proliferated low Earth orbit constellation of 
uh, IR uh, space sensors that can look down from space and quickly identify a hypersonic launch, but more importantly, find it, fix it, and track it. So you know what it is, and you can track it, and then you have some hope of stopping it. Um, good news today. So hypersonics is so popular. Not only do we have 70 programs across the department, the services are actually fighting over hypersonics. And this one I'm, I'm kind of a little bit smug about. Right? You, you, you know you've arrived when people are fighting over who loves hypersonics even more. Um, the Army has a program to build a hypersonic weapon, a part of long-range precision fires, it would essentially be a boost glider that launches off of a truck. And the Air Force and the Army got into a squabble over whether that was really the Army's mission. And very, very recently, the Secretary of the Air Force, Frank Kendall, came out and said he was actually okay with the Army doing this because you know we, we needed parallel paths and redundancy was, was sometimes good. But I kind of liken it to when, when, when the guy has two girlfriends fighting over him and the girl has two boyfriends fighting over him, or what, any combination. And when you've got two suitors who, who, who think you're, you're worth pursuing, um, um, th that shows you're, you're kind of in a good state. And that, that's frankly where we are right now in hypersonics. But I'll also tell you a really exciting, relatively new development. And that is, not only is the government investing in hypersonics, we're seeing some very, very interesting entities stepping up outside the government to invest in hypersonics as well. And I want to highlight two in particular that I'm, I'm particularly enthusiastic about. Left-hand side of the slide, you see a picture of an airplane called the ROC, R-O-C. It's operated, it's built, and op will be operated by a company called Stratolaunch. Um, Stratolaunch began as a company that was funded by billionaire Paul Allen. It was envisioned as a company that would launch payloads into orbit from a rocket that drops off a, a, this large aircraft. Um, and after Paul Allen passed away, um, Stratolaunch was repurposed into a company that is aiming to do hypersonic flight tests. Now, the rock that they have built is the world's largest airplane by wingspan, not by weight, although close, but by wingspan. It's essentially the size of two 747s glued together by a center wing section. And from that center, in that center wing section, will be mounted hypersonic test vehicles, a series of vehicles that are given the generic name Talon. Talon is a flying wind tunnel in the sky. And again, what is so exciting about this is, first, this is real hardware. Uh, Rock is, is in a hangar as we speak right now in Mojave, Mojave, California. The first Talon vehicles are actually being constructed in a hangar in Mojave, California. So this is not PowerPoint, this is real. And the fact that it's being funded by really private equity because of the recognition of the importance of hypersonics, I think says a lot about this, about, about this domain. Similarly, on the right-hand side of this slide, you see a new effort coming out of the state of Indiana uh, in partnership with uh, some, some uh, uh, corporate partners, industry, in the state of Indiana, um, Purdue University, its research foundation, an organization called 912 is laying the groundwork for something that's known as the Hypersonic Ground Test Center. And this will be a wind tunnel complex that's aimed at being able to test hypersonic systems up through the Mach scale, up through the Mach, the Mach range. And we've got wind tunnels today that can test at individual test points, individual Mach, Mach numbers. They can do hypersonic, obviously subsonic, supersonic, but the ground test center that the state of Indiana is envisioning will cover a much wider range and really allow the testing of next generation propulsion systems 
that will allow access into the hypersonic flight corridor from, from uh, takeoff conditions. That, that one's pretty exciting. And again, primarily funded at a private equity, but to meet the national needs. Now, I'm gonna footstomp why these are both really important. And I'll come back to a point that I made earlier in the, in the talk, which is we've had a string of hypersonic flight test failures. We frankly have inadequate hypersonic test infrastructure. Right? Those 70 programs that I mentioned, they're climbing over each other to get, to get, to get test time. Um, very recently, we had a program that was set to test in the Air Force's wind one of the Air Force's wind tunnels in Arnold at Arnold Engineering Development Center in Tullahoma, Tennessee. Their model construction was delayed because of COVID concerns. And so they missed their test window in the wind tunnel. They were told that they would have a two-year delay because they missed their test window. Now, Comrade Heads prevailed and they got time in the following weeks, but it was it 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 was, it, it was looking pretty bleak for a while. In fact, right now, if you wanna test the scramjet engine at full scale in the United States, you really have only two choices. There's a tunnel at, at Arnold Engineering Development Center and there's a tunnel at NASA Langland, and that's it. And there was a period about a year and a half ago, two years ago, when um, the Air Force tunnel at Arnold Engineering was down for maintenance. And the NASA Langley tunnel was using a nozzle that was past its lifespan, its predicted lifespan. So we could have been in a situation where we, had, where we had no ability in this nation to do a ground test of a full-scale supersonic combustion ramjet. So investments in both these, investments in flight test, investments in ground test are absolutely critical if we're gonna be successful, not just today, but into the future. All right, so let me kind of come back to some remaining questions. All right, and this is my penultimate slide. So first, I wanna pose a question that I, that I, I posed earlier which is, is it different this time? Will support for hypersonics continue? Well, the FY22 that came out of the Pentagon uh, left the budget intact that, that had been placed by the, original, by the, the previous administration, right? At the end of the Trump administration, um, the, uh, a significant plus up was added to hypersonics. And the, this administration came in and had several months to work on that budget. And when they were all done, they left it, they left it absolutely intact. Um, you've had recent comments from Heidi Hsu from the Deputy Secretary, even now, the Secretary of Defense hosted a meeting of leaders in industry where they uh, emphasized the importance of hypersonics. And over on the Hill, there's similar, similarly bipartisan support. There's a House Hypersonics Caucus that is led by Indiana Congressman Banks um, and uh, Congressman Mo Brooks that's advocating for hypersonics. Lots of interest in the Senate as well. Yeah, there's been some recent skepticism. I mentioned Frank Kendall, I mentioned the Union of Concerned Scientists, but that, although that's, that's maybe confusing the discussion. It hasn't. It hasn't. Uh, it hasn't diminished the enthusiasm of of of, of others. Um, but if we are to scale up, if we are to meet these challenges, then there are some other qu related questions, right? Can the defense industrial base scale up? It's one thing to build a demonstration group. It's one thing to build a single X forty three, a single X fifty one, a handful of Hawk of DARPA Hawk test vehicles. It's a whole nother issue to have the defense industrial base that can deliver tens, hundreds, thousands of hypersonic weapons, which is where we need to go if we're gonna be successful in countering the work of some of our peer competitors. Right. Will we have that ground infrastructure, the test infrastructure, flight test infrastructure? And I'll emphasize for flight tests, we need repeated access with recoverable test beds if we're to make advances in this field. 
the sorts of things that Strata Launch is talking about doing, the sorts of things we did with the X-15 rocket plane back in the 1960s. Um, international engagements remain strong. Australia remains a really strong partner in this, in this realm. Other countries also are very eager to work with the United States in hypersonics. Uh, the UK, uh, Canada, uh, Asian countries are working. Japan, for example, very interested in continuing to work with us. Israel is interested in working with the United States in hypersonics. Um, I've always argued that one of the strengths of the United States science and technology portfolio, why our enterprise is so, is so strong, is um, our, our, our friends, partners, and allies. Right? If you look at our spending in research, it's still the largest in the world, but China is rapidly advancing on us. But if you add our spending to the spending of all of our friends, partners, and allies, it completely swamps out of the Chinese. So together, we are much stronger than, than, than they can ever be, frankly. Um, back on the you know, background noise, so you will hear some discussion about hypersonics being an escalatory technology. I've had people ask me, have we ignited an arms race? Um, my answer is, we didn't ignite it, but there is an arms race underway. And whether or not we participate, we've got other folks who are racing to the finish line. Um, that's even, that even led last summer to the cancellation of a test uh, because it was seen as provocative. And then comrades prevailed and the test was allowed to go forward. Uh, but still it shows that, that, that this is an issue that's being discussed. And then there are some folks who've asked about, who, who, who've been pondering whether hypersonics should be addressed through nonproliferation. Should we, should we um, uh, ask everyone to step back from hypersonics through negotiation, just as we limited nuclear weapons? And at this point I say, I'm just an engineer, I'm not an arms negotiator, but until we have something available, until we have deployed systems, it's hard to imagine how we can engage in that sort of non-proliferation discussion with a peer competitor who does have that. It's not to their advantage to slow down. When we, when we uh, have, when we're on an equal footing, then it could be an, an advantage to everyone to slow down. But right now, I frankly just don't see that happening. All right, so. This is my get off the stage chart, and then I'll uh, I'll, I'll I'll be be uh, uh, hope to take your, your your questions and hope to have a robust discussion. Um, where do we go from here? Well, one is to continue doing hypersonics, but it needs to be at scale. It what do we mean by that? It means hypersonic systems, especially weapons, being delivered at the hundreds and thousands, not just a handful of demonstration. Now, I would. Sometimes have people in the Pentagon tell me, hey, we've got this great program and we're all done. We're going to have, you know, six hypersonic weapons. We'll have eight missiles. You know, we'll have 10 boost gliders, whatever. And I'd say, okay, so we got a target set and country in, in, in pick your least favorite country. We may have, have a target set of a thousand targets. Where do we launch our eight missiles at those thousand targets? We're not going to scare anyone with a handful of weapons. In order to have an impact on the future of defense, we have to do this at large scale. Ultimately, though, and I think I'll, I'll come back to some of my earliest comments. Ultimately, the really exciting application of hypersonics is reusable things. Hypersonic airplanes, both manned and unmanned, right? maybe using combined cycle engines that you know, take off on turbine power, acceler accelerate up to ramjet and scramjet speeds, or maybe some alternative propulsion of flow paths. There's a company called Reaction Engines, which is looking at liquid air systems, where instead of using a scramjet engine, they have a heat exchanger at the front of the engine that condenses, that liquefies air, separates that liquid oxygen, and then can, can, can burn it in a conventional rocket or maybe use it in a conventional jet engine. 
That's kind of an exciting alternate path to hypersonic speeds, essentially tricking the engine into thinking it's flying at a lower speed than it actually is. So all these ideas need to be on the table. Eventually we'll see a spin off to commercial applications. You know, hypersonic package delivery, hypersonic uh, pa uh, 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 passengers. And as I mentioned very early on, you know, the gleam in everyone's eye is hypersonic access to space. We ever get to the point where we can fly to space with the ease with which we fly across the Atlantic or fly across the Pacific, and we will have truly opened up the space frontier. So with that, let me, let me thank you all for your attention. And let's see, I see we've got both chat and um, questions and answers. So let me open both of those, because I, I think we've got an, even, an equal smattering of questions in chat and questions and answers. And let me ask this, let me ask that you, I'll, I'll address the chat questions, and then I'll ask that you put subsequent questions in the question and answer window. All right, so let's go in order. Um, here we go. All right. Um, here we go. First, okay, question, uh, AFOSR NATO work is also in progress at the NATO Research Center in Belgium. Yep, not, not a question, but it's a, but it's a comment, but yes. And again, it, it emphasizes the importance of the, the, the work that we do with our friends, partners, and allies, all right? I will remind everyone that the first supersonic combustion ramjet that was flown on a real vehicle was flown in Australia. Now, it didn't produce thrust greater than drag. That was X-43. It was a much smaller scale engine. It only did it for three, three seconds. It was a university team out of the University of Queensland that operated in the Australian outback. And that formed the core of the team that, that became our partners in programs like High Fire and now Sci-Fire. Um, for those of you uh, who visited the, uh, the Guggenheim labs at uh, Caltech on the roof of the Guggenheim lab building, there is a wind tunnel that is called uh, T5. It's a hypersonic wind tunnel. And it is a type of wind tunnel called a stalker tube named for uh, the late Ray Stalker, an AAA fellow. who uh, was kind of the, the father of Australian hypersonics. And Ray did pioneering work in Australia, um, mostly at the University of Queensland. And again, reminds us that this is truly an international endeavor. All right, next question. Let's go to question and answer. Ah, okay. So someone is asking about the pods on the X-15. So uh, quickly, they did a number, they did a number of, of different uh, appendages on the X-15. Um, there were added fuel tanks uh, mounted uh, underneath the X-15 for its highest speed flights. Um, if, you, if you look at the X-15 that's on exhibit in the Air Force Museum today, you can actually see those pods. They're, they're, they're mounted on, uh, on, they're on display below the X-15 that they have. Um, that was for extra fuel, get them up to speed. Um, that was actually remarkable in and of itself because they punched those pods off at high Mach number. So it was, a, it was a high Mach separation. It was a pretty, pretty sporty endeavor. Other things they did in the X-15 program, by the way, they did a dummy uh, scramjet test. Um, NASA had developed an engine called the HRE, the Hypersonic Research Engine. And they flew a model, not a working version, but they flew a model of that engine underneath an X-15 flight. Um, there's a great story there because that engine melted off the, the, the body of the vehicle. It was due to the nose shock of the vehicle interacting with a shock that formed on the pylon. And the engine fell off as the aircraft was landing. Um, there was a, an engineer at the time, young engineer by the name of Johnny Armstrong, who calculated exactly where the engine had fallen. He drove out in the desert. He, he found it. 
Um, we learned a lot from that, that failure, by the way. We learned about how shocks interacting with other shocks can produce incredibly intense heating on a surface. So it was, it was one of those, those noble, useful failures. Um, we also, by the way, many, many years later, uh, the folks at NASA Dryden had a joint effort with the Russians where they flew an engine that was configured in a shape very close to that X-15 hypersonic research engine. And the Russians basically flew, a, flew that, that type of configuration on a large missile. And the jury's still out whether the engine would have worked or not. It's not clear if they actually had supersonic combustion, but it was an interesting follow-on to the X-15 program. All right, let's see. Hey, question from Paul Ronnie. Paul, good to hear from you. Um, sorry, based on unclassified information, do you believe the Russian and Chinese claims regarding their hypersonic capabilities? Uh, yes, yes, I do. Uh, by almost any metric that I can construct, just based on the unclassified information, the, both the Russians and the Chinese are ahead of us, certainly in terms of deployed systems. I mean, I showed you the picture of, of the Russian parade in 2019. They didn't, they're not even trying to hide it. Um, you, can, you can go on YouTube and the Chinese will show off their wind tunnels. They build, they've been on a building spree on wind tunnels including the world's largest uh, shock tube. Uh, along those lines, I'll, I'll give you a quick little anecdote, which was uh, when we had the AWA hypersonics conference in Scotland, um, I guess that was probably 20, 2016, um, the Chinese uh, gave a presentation on their new shock facility. And previously, some of our experts had looked at it and concluded it would be a really crappy tunnel. The length of diameter of the driver tube was off, we thought. We thought the flow conditions in their, in their facility would be rather poor. And then they presented the data and it was really good data. I mean, they made some, they, they understood how to build that tunnel. Their level of sophistication was notable. Some of the work that we see also in the unclassified world, uh, some of the competition work that's coming out of China, again, is really impressive. Some of the configurational work that they're doing, really impressive. And one of the things that, that I'll tip my hat, especially uh, to, to China on, um, they have, integrate, they've done a whole of country approach to hypersonics. They've integrated their universities directly in with their industrial and government activities. Um, in fact, that was sort of the inspiration when we set up the Joint Hypersonic Transition Office. We figured let's, let's learn, take a page from what they're doing to get our university students working directly on programs of relevance in the United States. All right, so uh, let's see, uh, Edward Keefe is asking, how do we protect ourselves from hypersonic vehicles? Um, do you have to make an even faster vehicle? Okay, great question. First, it is in fact, in fact possible, it is possible to defend against a hypersonic weapon, but it's really, really difficult, right? That's why we're interested in pursuing hypersonics, and that's why other people are pursuing hypersonics, all right? And, and here I want to emphasize, it's not just the speed of a hypersonic weapon. It's the combination of speed and maneuverability and the altitude at which they operate, right? It's the maneuverability that makes them unpredictable. So for example, if someone launches a ballistic missile at you, if you watch its initial launch, you've got a pretty good idea where it's going because it's governed by, by gravity. But if someone launches a hypersonic maneuvering vehicle at you, well, it can bank, it can dive, it can, it can glide. It's much less predictable. And that's especially true in the end game. So it, uh, a hypersonic weapon, for example, could spiral, spiral around, it could attack from any azimuth. So that makes stopping these things difficult. But again, I'll emphasize, not impossible. All right, so how would you stop a hypersonic weapon? Well, the first thing you do, you might do is you hit a bullet with a bullet. 
these things are vulnerable at parts in their in, at, at parts of their trajectory. Um, when a hypersonic vehicle is boosting, for example, when it's in its initial glide phase, it's not as maneuverable. So you might be able to get it with a high-speed weapon. There's a rule of thumb that says that if you're trying to intercept an object, you have to have three times the maneuverability of that object. So if a hypersonic vehicle can maneuver, maneuver at uh, three Gs, you got to be able to do nine Gs if you're going to intercept it. General rule of thumb. That's easier to do earlier on in the flight, which is like identifying it, seeing it, tracking it quickly is so important. That's one thing you can do. Second thing, use its speed against it. For lack of a better description, throw up flak. Let that hypersonic object run into something at hypersonic speeds. It will very, very quickly cease to exist in a usable form. So that's a solution. The other is you force the hypersonic weapon to expend energy, right? You think about a hypersonic glide vehicle. In order to uh, 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 be unpredictable, it has to uh, maneuver, it has to bank, dive. When it's doing that, it's wasting energy. It's utilizing, it's, 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 it's uh, using up some of its, uh, uh, some of its initial energy. Um, so if you can force the weapon to do that, if you can force it to maneuver out of the way, then it might not be a vehicle kill, but it could be a mission kill. Other options, directed energy. Line some sensors. Maybe you can do things to airflow over the vehicle. Maybe you can damage it some way. And then finally, you know, there's the, uh, an, an, another option, which, which we refer to generally in, in the Department of Defense as left of launch, which is you do things that prevents them from launching. Um, when we did our 2016 study, we looked at all those options. And we also concluded that there was a final option, which is that sometimes the best defense is a strong offense. Which is to say, if you've got an adversary who is shooting, say, hypersonic weapons, and then quickly getting out of the way, shoot and scoop, you know, you, you launch your hypersonic missile off a truck, and then you try, you pack up and you go as quickly as possible. The best way to defeat that person, that, that opponent is, you hit them really, really quickly before they can get out of the way. And that means you need a hypersonic weapon that's gonna respond. Now, you can't respond at Mach 0.7 if they're shooting you at uh, shooting at you at Mach six, and hope to get them get, get them have have a meaningful impact, no pun intended. All right, let's see. Um, talk a lot about physical testing. Any thoughts on the use of simulation to advance hypersonics? Absolutely critical, and I think that's one of the great success stories in the field. Um, our ability to model and simulation of hypersonic flows is is really quite remarkable. I talked about the success of X-51, so that was already a decade ago. One of the big successes wasn't just the flight test part of that program, but also the fact that X-51 uh, had extensive modeling and simulation. There were, there were, there were in, uh, an incredible number of, of CFD runs that were done in the X-51 configuration that then lined up with the ground test and lined up with the flight test. Um, there are clearly things that we cannot simulate in a ground facility. And so modeling and simulation becomes absolutely essential. And also one of the ways that you might tackle this problem of having insufficient ground test capability is you use modeling and sim simulation in, in, in better ways. Now, having said that, I'm gonna admit, I'm a, I, 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 I'm a strong believer that you will always, always need ground test and you will always definitely need some flight test, right? You need all three of those in combination, ground, flight, and modeling and simulation. All right, let's see. Another question, would investments in physics-based modeling simulation tools help alleviate some of the pressures? Absolutely, I think I just answered that. 
Uh, no substitute to real test, agree. Perhaps a robust physics-based modeling simulation infrastructure can complement. And yes, and we're already doing that. And and um, you know, I'll give you I'll give you just one example. Um, I, I mentioned I mentioned the folks at Strata Launch in Mojave. Um, they're also as they're building this flight test vehicle, uh, they're also building a modeling and simulation capability. Um, that's also true if you look at most of the wind tunnel facilities around the country. They're building a modeling and simulation uh, capability. All right, let's see. Oh. Uh, Martin, where does the U.S. stand in deploying a 350-second flight capability launched from 45,000 feet? <laughs> well, you know, the way I'd like to see us do that, I'd say there, there are a number of ways you can do flight tests. Um, I'll tell you, one of the things that limits us today, most of our flight tests for air breathing systems is being, being done out of Edwards Air Force Base off of an Air Force B-52. Um, right now, in order to do those flights, uh, you have to compete first for time on the flight range. The B-52s that we use are old airplanes, right? The youngest B-52 in the fleet is older than I am, which is old. And so we, we need a more robust flight test capability. Uh, let's see. Um, here's a question to catch up on our adversaries. What are your thoughts on how our procurement proposal award process can be made more efficient timely? Oh, gosh. So that's an outstanding question because of course we have a procurement system that we all love to hate on because of how slow and burdensome and bureaucratic it is. And that's just hypersonics. That is across the board. Um, our acquisition system today is a result of decades of formation and congressional action. It is optimized for fairness not for efficiency. By that, I mean our acquisition is designed so that you know everyone gets a chance to bid, everyone can try to be the low bidder, and we don't necessarily pay attention to, to, uh, um, to efficiency and speed. However, when necessary, we can. There are a number of ways to do that. Um, the department has most recently been, been exploring uh, alternate acquisition strategies. Um, for example, things called OTAs, other transactional authorities that are being set up to uh, rapidly acquire systems into the Department of Defense. There are organizations across the department that are trying to streamline acquisition. Organizations like the Defense Intelligence Unit, uh, headquartered on the West Coast, run by Mike Brown, that is essentially a, a rapid portal, if you will, into the Department of Defense. Um, I mentioned the Space Development Agency that's working with MDA in developing hypersonic defenses. Well, there are, their, their motto is Semper Sidious, which means always faster. And they're developing, they are deploying space systems in part to support hyper, hypersonic detection at near, near record speed. So there are some good news stories, but we're still not there yet. I mean, we, we really need to get serious on procuring systems faster, testing them more rapidly. Uh, and, and that I think requires I hate to say it, a whole of government effort in conjunction with industry. All right, let's see. Um, SDS and X37B, while not powered during reentry, have been hypersonic for years, so materials are not a problem. Well, let me point out, you're exactly right. A a SDS and X37 were absolutely hypersonic vehicles, all right? The space shuttle was a hypersonic airplane. When it entered the atmosphere from orbital speeds, it was traveling at about 25 times the speed of sound. But it was a glider. It was slowing down. It had very blunt leading edges in order to handle the heat. So the heating rates in the shuttle uh, were, were, were manageable 
frankly, uh, because of the geometry. Now, if you wanted to build something that operated in the, under the same conditions, but could, could fly in the atmosphere for a much longer period of time, didn't have such high drag, for example, you'd have to give it much sharper leading edges. And that means much higher heating rates at those leading edges. So materials there would be a problem. Now, I'll, I'll take you back to X51. X51 flew at Mach 5, roughly, not Mach 25 like the space shuttle, but it actually used space shuttle-derived thermal protection systems, which were indeed completely adequate. Right? We, we really have a good handle on the, on the thermal protection materials that are required for flying in the, in the Mach 5 Carter. Um, as you start going up the scale, it becomes more and more challenging. Some of the boost glide concepts uh, go above Mach 10, some, some, some hidden Mach 20. Um, and there we're still, we're still in development phases. Um, that HTV2 vehicle that I described, that DARPA attempted to fly and that failed twice, it, it, it failed because, uh, in at least one case, it failed because its thermal protection system failed. And it's, a, it's actually a, a really interesting story about what happened in that flight. But it was a combination of mistakes made in modeling the aerodynamics, mistakes made in predicting when the boundary layer would transition, but also uh, challenges in the thermal protection system such that whole, whole chunks of the thermal protection system sort of falling off the vehicle leading to its failure. Let's see, a uh, question, uh, can we have multi-year funding with some stipulation that the increase in the later years is dependent upon the program reaching certain goals? Well, in fact, right now we try to do program milestones. Um, and, and yeah, you, know, you, you would like to think that if goals aren't reached, then we um, reallocate funds accordingly. And, and to, to a certain extent, um, we're already doing something like that, right? I, I can point to some of the hypersonics programs where decisions are being made based on uh, early results that are leading to uh, uh, redirections or changes in scope. Um, I, I think as, as you see the, the next string of flight tests, I think you'll, you'll be seeing that. So yeah, absolutely. There need to be uh, consequences for success and there need to be consequences for failure. Let's see. Uh, question, what about SpaceX moving from outer atmosphere to back to earth with their new craft? Well, of course, SpaceX has taken an entirely different approach. Right when they come back to Earth, they're they're landing on a rocket. Um, I can I can give you the pros and cons of that, but really not not quite. Um, it's quite a quite a different approach to to flight. And again, it, it has the advantage of not requiring much new technology being developed, but there are some disadvantages as well. Not the least of which is launch loads, launch capability, and responsiveness. All right. Again, from Paul, is there a tall pole to practical hypersonic flight? Um, God, if you could ask God to how to solve one part of the problem, well, I don't think I'd be that presumptuous, Paul. But I think what I would say, for me, the, 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 real, the, the real long pole is the propulsion side. All right, we built scramjets that have operated in the 200 second range. Um, if we want practical manned hypersonic flight, we need engines that will get us off the ground, punch through Mach 1, get us all the way up to Mach 5, Mach 6, and then let us decelerate and land again. That is really a very challenging problem. We don't know how to do that. We know how to do each individual point in that flight. We know how to build an, you know, an engine, obviously, that'll take off from the ground. Uh, we know how to build a supersonic engine. We know how to build a hypersonic engine. But a propulsion plant that can capture all those is still a little bit of a challenge. Now, I think there's a lot of, a lot of interesting work that's been done. Um, work from Boeing, for example, has looked at designs for hypersonic vehicles. The most recent AAA conference uh, Kevin Bocut's team unveiled some configurations for hypersonic aircraft. 
And that's really close to trying to solve that propulsion challenge. But you need that engine first before, before those vehicles will be practical. Let's see. Uh, Marty, hey, good to hear from you. Marty Bradley asks, but first he says, gets notified every month that people are reading my old hypersonic reports. That's good. Uh, as, 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 but they're always Chinese students. Yeah, I know. Um, mentioned overselling. Do you think people are overselling commercial hypersonic applications, including hypersonic airliners? Um, yes. <laughs> yes, Marty, I do. Uh, building a hypersonic airplane will be extremely, extremely difficult. Anyone that tells you they've solved the problem, they've got, they've got a solution. Yeah, not so fast. Um, you know, now having said that, I just, I just mentioned the work from Boeing and I don't want to take anything away from that. Um, the Boeing work is incredibly, incredibly credible, right? Um, no, no one knows more about hypersonic vehicle design than Kevin Boca. And so the configurations that he showed um, really hold together very well. But I think even Kevin would say, you know, we're not quite there yet. There are steps that we need to go through in order to make that a, a practical airplane. So anyone who tells you, hey, give us some money, we're gonna build the airplane tomorrow. Yeah, I don't think I'd buy into that. I have to, I have to marvel at their enthusiasm. I love their enthusiasm. You know, in some of these companies, their enthusiasm is, is contagious, but I do worry about it being oversold. I'd say, um, here's someone asking, companies seeking to use additive manufacturing to speed up prototyping hypersonic systems. Um, absolutely, absolutely critical. I think one of the things that we've seen for the development of hypersonic propulsion is the introduction of additive manufacturing. If I look at a scramjet that was being you know, built say 10 years ago, and I look at the scramjets that are being produced today, the secret sauce is that they're being uh, manufactured using additive manufacturing techniques. And do I foresee regulatory bodies such as the FAA uh, being open to partnering in order to speed up the testing process? Yeah, I think I do, I think I do. Um, and, and, but you know, first, it's, it's not gonna be launched first. First, it's gonna be flight test. And I can tell you that some of the companies that I talk to, um, they're having a lot of success working with the FAA. So the FAA is not a roadblock. Ah, Ken, Ken Soleil, good to hear from you. Competition versus Manhattan Project level national program. Um, look, I, I, I hate the term Manhattan Project because things get labeled, things are too readily labeled Manhattan Project. But yes, this needs to be, uh, no, no, no kidding, we are serious national effort. Um, that's what we were gearing up to in the Pentagon when I was there. And I think we built that momentum. And um, most recently, I, you know, conversations with, with, with now colleagues in the Pentagon, including Heidi Shu, she's actually used the term Manhattan Project scale effort in hypersonics. So yes, absolutely, we, we need to be doing that. Um, other countries aside from US, Russia, China that are currently focused in development. I mentioned Australia as, um, as, as uh, being a partner. Uh, should we be afraid of them? Actually, I don't know if we should be afraid of any of them. We should be wary of, of some. But, but really, I have to be honest, it's Russia and China that I worry about the most. Uh, the rest of the world is working with us. Um, India has worked a little bit with the Russians. Um, they've been talking about a hypersonic version of their BrahMos missile for a while. Um, but I'm not as worried about that. Um, you could imagine a day when hypersonic technology is proliferating around the world. You know, you think about hotspots around the world, which might be a little bit scary. So that might not be so much countries developing the technology, but proliferating the technology. And, and that can be pretty scary. You know, uh, uh, pick your favorite two countries that, that hate each other, pointing hypersonic weapons at each other. And countries that may not be willing to use nuclear weapons might be willing to use hypersonic weapons. 
Um, let's see. Um, Ed Aisley asked me to comment on the recent CSIS report about using microwaves. Um, you know, that was one of a number of capabilities that were suggested. You know, I, I mentioned using directed energy, lasers, microwaves might also possibly affect uh, electronics on, on board a, a hypersonic vehicle. Um, that certainly needs to be one of the arrows, if you will, in the quiver of defenses. Oh, okay. Here's a, here's a question. Let me expand on this uh, in my presentation. And I think I'll, I'll take this question and then answer one last question. So uh, in my presentation, I mentioned DARPA is on the critical path. Yes. So this is frankly a mistake that we in the Department of Defense made. And, and, and that was in 2016, when the message got around the Pentagon that, gosh, we are in a race now. Other people are building these things and it could impact future defense. We need to jump in on this. So DARPA at the time had two programs, uh, an air breathing propulsion program called Hawk and a rocket boost glide program called TBG, tactical boost glide. And so the decision was made, that's what we've got in development. Let's build programs of, of programs based on that. So the Air Force invested in the tactical boost glide program and that became the Arrow program. So Arrow is a direct derivative of the tactical boost glide. And that means we put DARPA on the path to developing a weapon. That's a really bad idea. DARPA is not a weapons development agency. DARPA is developing new technology, far ranging, horizon stuff. They need to be allowed to fail, right? When you're developing a weapon, you can't be allowed to fail. It's a whole different mindset. DARPA is interested in demonstrating new ideas, new technologies, not necessarily on proving out step by, you know, stepwise technologies that lead to a program of record. And so, that's what we did. That's where we are. There's no solving it. I would just tell my, my friends at DARPA, hey, <clears throat> this kind of sucks because this isn't what you should be doing. But because of decisions that were made before you were brought in, uh, this is kind of the, the role the role you've been placed in. So, so don't screw it up. And, and, and indeed, if you see today, our, you know, our main programs uh, for, for air launch systems, Arrow, uh, and now the Air Force is talking about a hypersonic air breathing cruise missile. Um, they're deriving from those DARPA programs. All right, let me take one last question, uh, and that is supply chain supply chain challenges. Uh, yes, definitely supply chain challenges. And again, we're talking about scaling up hypersonics. That means delivering in ultimately hundreds and thousands. So that means we need to have the industrial base to develop high temperature materials, to develop if it's air breathing systems, scramjet engines. It means additive manufacturing on a huge scale. Um, all the supply chain challenges you have with a conventional weapon, you've got with a hypersonic weapon. Microelectronics, for example, um, sensors that re uh, require uh, rare, rare earth metals. Um, so to that extent, we're actually uh, at NDIA, we're doing a study on that very issue. We're looking at the defense industrial base and, and its ability to step up to the needs that the department is projecting for hypersonic systems. And so far, we're not actually getting a really good answer. And there are a lot of reasons for that, but not the least of which is the department really hasn't been, hasn't been providing the demand signal that industry needs to truly step up to the plate. And then last part of that question, do I see uh, my kids enjoying a point-to-point a -point hypersonic ride in their lifetime? Ooh, I don't know about that. Maybe my grandkids. I'm pretty optimistic about my grandkids. You know, um, Making predictions about the future is, is, is always kind of dangerous. Um, as I like to say, it, it's actually really easy to make predictions. The, the challenge is in being right. Um, I, I, my, 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 my difficulty in making these sorts of predictions is, I, I think humans tend to think linearly. 
and technology tends to grow exponentially. And so we have a habit of overestimating progress in the short term and underestimating progress in the long term. And I suspect the same is true with hypersonics. Right now, if I were to project out, I, I would maybe, I try to uh, uh, be, be a little bit overly cautious and not being, not being overly optimistic. But I, I suspect if we were to have a similar talk in 100 years from now, the, the progress that we will have made in some cases it will be in areas that we could not have even imagined today. So I think that's a that's a, a good point to stop. Let me once again thank all of you for your time, your your interest, your attention, uh, for for giving up part of your uh, Saturday morning to talk about this topic. And um, you guys, you guys are you know welcome to to reach out to me directly. Um, if you're AWA members, you can find me in the AWA member directory. Uh, just go to you know uh, my uh, my AWA on the on the website. Um, click down to the directory, and you can find my contact information. And, and feel free to reach out to me if you have any follow-on questions or, or, or interests or concerns. So thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Lewis. This is really amazing, fantastic. Uh, so just a, uh, one more word. You mentioned about the AIWA directory. If actually AIWA member can also uh, reach to any member on Engage <coughs> with, without knowing the email address. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, so you, if you uh, folks, you are a member of AIWA, you can also use Engage uh, to contact Dr. Luis uh, without knowing his email address. You, you have to invite uh, and uh, uh, then, then you can say message. Okay, thank you so much. Uh, this is amazing. So I wish we can have another great opportunities, uh, uh, opportunity uh, in the future. Uh, so welcome back, uh, uh, Dr. Luis, this is your home. So anytime and hopefully after pandemic, we can have you here in person at some point. I would enjoy that very much. Fantastic. All right. Uh, thank you. So uh, this concludes our um, uh, uh, event today. So uh, welcome to stay around a little bit, but uh, the program uh, stopped here. So uh, once again, thank you so much, everyone. Uh, keep in touch. Uh, so uh, uh, look forward to uh, next uh, seeing you next time. Have a wonderful Saturday. Have a great weekend. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.